Hi, welcome. This is Yolanda and I'm sharing with you my readings from the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832-1914 and um, I'm beginning chapter 9 um, entitled Politics and um, the heading of this um, section is Jack Mormons. Welcome and I hope that you enjoy. Let's begin. The going out of the church under Brigham Young because of mob violence being directed against it was a disastrous blow to Nauvoo and its environment. The exodus was preceded by a series of petty annoyances against the leading men and by more serious offences against many saints residing in the country all through the counties of Hancock, Adams, McDonough and Mercer. The gravest of these occurred in Hancock County. The saints were the chief objects of these indignities, though many who sympathised with them also suffered. Grain was burnt, haystacks destroyed, and cattle, hogs and horses run off and in many instances killed. Many owners were subjected to abuse, beatings and even death if they were resisted or remonstrated. I hope I said that right, if they resisted or remonstrated. As I have said, this kind of persecution was not confined to Mormons alone. Whoever was an advocate for law and order or dared to speak or act in defence of the rights of the persecuted was liable to receive similar treatment, and they were contemptuously called Jack Mormons. Christopher E. Yates, a farmer living in the eastern part of Hancock County, was one who suffered much loss because of his friendship with the, for the abused. He was a New Yorker and a very prosperous man. Nevertheless, because of his outspoken defence of the rights of the saints to occupy their farms and to possess unmolested other property, his own grain was ruined, his stock killed or stolen and his fine barn ruined or burned. This treatment did not change his opinion one, lot, one iota or his determination to express it. Though he was compelled to move off his farm, he came into the city where he bought the property occupied before the exodus by Uncle John Smith and his son George A. Among other men who sympathised with the saints and had settled in the city were Milton M. Morrill, of whom mentioned has been made a merchant by the name of W.C. Clifford and a lawyer named Doggerty. There was also Mr. George Edmonds, of whom I have written at some length, the able lawyer, the able law partner of Ammon W. Babbitt. He also assisted the firm of Babbitt, Hayward and Fulmer, the committee appointed to look after the interests of those outgoing Mormons who had not been able to sell their property before going, in an effort to see when needed that they were properly represented in the law courts. There were many other friendly people who came in, but those I have mentioned have some special relations with the outgoing church members and were well acquainted with their business affairs. Mr Edmonds was a fearless man of Quaker parentage. He came from western New York with his wife and purchased the Orson Hyde property just across the street to the north of us, the house being on Main Street, near the store of David Lyon, and perhaps two blocks from Brigham Young's house, near Masonic Hall. 
This place he occupied for a number of years, removing later onto a tract of land about halfway between Nauvoo and Carthage, which he succeeded in purchasing and upon which he created a magnificent and well-stocked farm. His house there was an excellent one, equipped with all the modern conveniences of the period and locality. Mr Edmonds was always outspoken in his opposition to mobocracy and was always ready to defend those who needed an advocate. He was materially helpful to my... Sorry, let me say that again. He was materially helpful to my mother in preventing the spoilation of the properties left her and her children of at the death of my father, as I have already written. Some months after he came to the city, a rather important suit was heard before a justice by the name of Chapman. This suit was hotly contested and a clash occurred between the two groups of citizens who took sides in the matter. Some bitter denunciations were held against those men dubbed Jack Mormons, in the course of which a rabid anti-Mormon threatened to kill Mr Edmonds. I was standing not far away when this occurred and noticed that Mr Edmonds showed not the slightest sign of fear. Instead, he answered, you will do no such thing. You will not kill me or any th anyone else, for you are too cowardly. I'm here to do my duty as a man and a decent citizen, and I do not propose to be frightened from it by being called hard names or by threats from a mere bully. I had seen many personal quarrels by that time and heard so many threats that did not result in blows from either fist or knife or in injury from pistol shots, that I had come to believe that men who talked too loudly about injuring others were seldom the ones courageous enough to really kill in cold blood. I admired Mr Edmonds, whom I then knew only by sight and name, for his fearless answer to his antagonist later. When I came to know him better, I came to respect him as highly for his manliness and justice for he stood squarely and unwaveringly to prevent injustice being done to many of the fame uh, to many of the families of outgoing saints um, there are some pictures that i haven't shared with you um so there's a picture of um the ruins of the Nauvoo temple on page 62 and it, this is um, um titled drawing by frederick Piercy, 1853. Um, once again, um, let me read the rest of the um, bit that goes underneath it. President Joseph Smith records that the exodus of the saints from Nauvoo was a sad blow to the city. The ruins of the temple left to brood over a scene of desolation seemed also to typify the ruined hopes of the church. But the members of the reorganisation pinned their faith to the promises of God. Zion shall not be moved out of her place. They that remain and are faithful shall return with songs of everlasting joy. That's nice. Um, there's another picture on another page. Um, it says the old 70s hall in Nauvoo. It says um, here President Smith went to school. Later he became one of the directors of the school. It was here that as a director he took part in a spelling match and managed to misspell the word separate. Though he was always a most excellent speller. So little diner Ikin triumphantly won over the school director. <laughs> I wonder if he deliberately spelt that wrong. Anyway, let's get back to um, this chapter. 
the next heading, adjustments. Following the influx of new citizens, the personnel of the municipal offices was changed by popular elections. City ordinances were remodelled to suit new offices. And in the spring of 1848, a new constitution was adopted. Under these new laws, a deficiency in title resulting from the departure of persons who did not properly convey their property before they left subjected the pro property to conveyance by tax types obtained through the public sale of such property for delinquent taxes. A good deal of this sort of buying was being done in the county and especially in the city of Nauvoo and its suburbs. Among those who took advantage of this manner of getting property were Hiram and Phoenus Kimball, brothers, a Methodist by the name of Adam Schwartz and another German named George Ritter. There were doubtless others, but these I remember as being the principal ones who profited thereby. I particularly mention the Messrs Kimball for the reason that they took advantage of a number of the settlers and secured titles to many pieces of property held by other individuals through purchase. Chief among these were some Germans who had come in, brought property and were engaged in gardening, fruit raising and winemaking. It finally came to such a pass that Mr Hiram Kimball incurred the hostility of quite a number of men because of these methods of his and he was threatened with personal violence. It was believed that it was not safe for him to remain in the place but whether or not he thought so it is a fact that he quietly made his city property over to his brother Phoenix and with his wife went out to Salt Lake City. There he became a contractor for street work and there later died. I believe his wife was of the Granger family and that both she and her husband were members of the Utah church. For at that time it would have been difficult if not impossible for anyone to obtain work especially of such public character as street contracting unless he belonged to the dominant organisation the only church in the territory at the time. Some of the property Hiram Kimball made over to his brother at this time included a number of these tax claims on other people's property. These were disputed by those who had prior claim, though there were pieces which, if brought to trial, would probably, under the existing new laws, be construed to belong to Mr Kimball. It was to combat such injust injustices being done to honest and toiling settlers that Mr Edmonds was frequently moved to vigorous action and able championship. There is a sequel to this story. It is said there is honour even among thieves, that is to say that thieves will act honourably in their treatment of each other. If obtaining landed property through public sales for taxes and through the failures the failure of the real owners through misfortune or otherwise to redeem within the time specified by law may be considered a species of theft then these Kimball brothers might be called thieves however it happened that instead of the honour supposed to exist among men of that class in this case the opposite prevailed for it was currently reported and quite generally believed that when Mr Hiram Kimball asked his brother Phoenix for an accounting for what he had put into the latter's hands in the manner described, he failed to obtain it. 
it is known that Mr. Finus Kimball retained the large city property and occupied it until his death. He had married while a young man in the state of Maine, I think, and brought his wife with him to the west. She did not like, she did not live long, and he afterwards married the daughter of Mr. Ikin, the kind German storekeeper whom I have already mentioned in these pages. When Mr. Ikin's son John had become of age, the father purchased the store of Amos Davis, a successful businessman of the locality, who also owned considerable farmland east of Nauvoo at a place called the Mount, a noted landmark on the prairie road between our city and Fort Madison. Mr. Ikin and John did not run this Davis store very long before the old gentleman died and the young man continued the business alone a successful and honourable man who later served the city as mayor it was John Eichen's sister Dinah who became the second wife of this Venus Kimball I have a pleasant recollection connected with this girl which I will relate here the next heading is school director for a number of years, I served as school director in what was known as the first ward of the city. The school at the time was held in the 70s hall, where it used to be held when I was a boy. In one of the terms of school, when Miss Morrill, sister to the attorney I have frequently mentioned, was teacher, she arranged for an entertainment to be held the last Friday afternoon. With other directors, I attended the exercises, which included a spelling match in which the entire company, pupils, visitors and directors, lined up for the contest. Among the visitors, I recall, were two young school teachers, sisters, by the name of Elliot. Soon, one by one, the contestants were spelled down, until finally they were left to finish the battle of words. Only this little girl, Dinah Ikin, and one of her and one of the directors myself. I seem to see her now, such a bright little girl, standing so confident, so cheerful in the contest, gently tossing and turning between her fingers a closed book she held in her hands. After spelling for a while longer, I managed to misspell the word separate, which I knew was frequently spelled with three E's, and the little girl was triumphantly declared the winner over the school director. What does he mean? I knew it was frequently spelled with three E's. Huh? Separate. How can separate be with three E's? Hmm. Anyway, check that out. As we were passing out of the building later, Miss Morell said, Mr. Smith, you missed that word on purpose. And he responded, Now you have no need to charge me with doing that, I replied. I never did admit misspelling the word on purpose, but of course she continued to believe I did. I am quite sure that little Miss Eichen never forgot her victory, and I know it was one I would not have deprived her of for a good deal. She was always very pleasant to meet and chat with, both before and after her marriage to Mr Kimball. They had three or four children and then Mr Kimball died, leaving to his wife and sons the fine estates he had accumulated. Their sons, I understand, occupy honourable positions in the communities where they live. During one of my terms as school director, I had an as, as associate part of the time a blacksmith named William Smith. He was a Canadian who had come in with an immigration of saints and had set up a shop 
For reasons best known to himself and possibly a few intimates, he had chosen not to go west with the others, but purchased the house and property once owned and occupied by Elder Sidney Rigdon. It was located on the same block as the mansion house and had been rented for a while after Mr Rigdon's departure until t purchased by the blacksmith. Mr Smith became an advocate of spiritism and had a number of books on the subject. His wife made no, profess no profession of other religion and would scarcely speak of Mormonism, but they were very good neighbours and we lived side by side for a long time and without friction. The man was an excellent smith and re remarkably proficient at horseshoeing. He met his death in a peculiar manner. Growing in his yard were some shade trees which impinged upon his cherry trees and he, under and he undertook to trim them. He climbed into one of the shade trees and standing on the limb he wished to cut off, caught hold of the limb, caught hold of a limb above his head with which to steady himself he began to saw making the cut near the trunk of the tree intending to catch himself by his hold on the limb above when the wood started to break but alas the branch cracked sooner than he expected he lost his hold and fell to the ground striking the back of his head in such a way as to cause paral par paralysis from his neck down he lived for over two months in that helpless and pitiful condition, his brain active and sentient, his eyes bright with intelligence, and yet he unable to speak or move. Mrs Smith had studied spiritism to some sort also, and had read her husband's, had read her husband's books. She loaned me the works of Andrew Jackson Davis, which I have mentioned elsewhere. I recall an interesting episode in connection with her and this subject. A woman came to town who had gone with her husband and children to Utah. They had come from England, becoming interested in the spirit phenomena. She had developed into a lecturer and toured the country, expounding her ideas and giving demonstrations. I may add that this was number this was numbers of years later for the woman once was once a member of the reorganized church but left it to pursue her work in spiritism or spiritualism commonly so called she came to nauvoo as i have said obtained a place in which to speak and advertised widely that she proposed to deliver her lecture under the influence of the spirit of joseph smith the prophet this was interesting indeed but i was still more interested when i received a message through her neighbor mrs william smith stating that the lecturer much preferred that i should not attend her meeting under these circumstances i certainly had no inclination to do so i had no confidence in spiritism as a cult and still less in her ability to explain it or defend its beliefs however i asked mrs smith who did expect to attend if she would please take close notice of the speaker and everything she did or said purporting to come through the influence of Joseph Smith and tell me afterwards what she thought of it. This she agreed to do. The lecture was delivered, but I never did learn from anyone just what was its trend or substance. 
When I asked my neighbour about it, she seemed disinclined to talk of it and appeared to have been seriously disappointed. I think she had been anxious to believe that the woman lecturer was honest and was indeed really moving in the higher ranks of spiritism development. Finally, I pressed the question. Mrs Smith, do you really think this woman was actuated by the spirit of Joseph Smith, the prophet, as she advertised? And with considerable snap, she said, Oh, poor Joseph Smith never said win. <laughs> this amusing answer was all I ever did get from Mrs. Smith about that lecturer. But knowing her so well, I understood clearly that she had no confidence in the lecturer and did not believe the lady had been moved by the spirit of Joseph Smith in any sense whatsoever. Mr. and Mrs. William Smith had two children, Willem and Mary. The son was rather wild and reckless, and he and his father did not agree very well. He finally left home before he was of age and found employment at St. Louis as a professional diver in the Mississippi River and in other places where submarine investigations and examinations were required. From this employment, he developed rheumatism, which affected his heart, and he died while still quite young. After her husband's death, Mrs. Smith and her daughter lived together for a time in the old property and then the daughter married Samuel Nickrick, Nimrick. That's an unusual name, isn't it? Samuel Nimrick, son of one of the new citizens. His father had succeeded Mr. Slocum as manager of the American Hotel opposite the northeast corner of the Temple Block. Samuel Nimrick was a steamboat engineer and was later appointed inspector of steam engines on the upper Mississippi. After the mother died, Mrs Nimrick and her family moved up north somewhere to the region of Dubuque or perhaps Minneapolis. There the husband died leaving her with one son. These two are, for all I know, still living. Another associate in the school directorship was a Pennsylvania German by the name of William Leitner. Because he had difficulty in pronouncing the consonant V, the ruder boys in the neighbourhood were in the habit of calling him, of calling Winnegar, Wheel and Wenison. He owned the house built by John D. Lee, where he lived for quite a number of years with his wife and two sons, William and Bonus. He was an excellent man, honest and true to his convictions. Next heading, school funds. Mr. Leitner, Mr. William Smith and I formed a trio that served the first ward for several years. This ward had no school building the sessions being held in rented halls. When it was decided to build a schoolhouse, a vote of the citizens had, according to law, to be called to select a location. Two different sites were suggested, and at the election that ensued, neither received enough votes to make its selection legal. Thus, it was up to the directors to solve the difficulty. There was a fund of $600 in the hands of the township treasurer, which belonged to the district. We trustees found that the 70s hall could be purchased for $1,200. The amounts on hand would be accepted as a down payment and the balance could be paid in three separate instalments, we ascertained. 
So, as directors, we went ahead and arranged for the purchase. When the second payment was due, a tax was levied and collected, and the obligation met. In a similar way, a tax was levied by the directors for the third payment, and provision had been made for its collection, when a number of citizens who had been unfavourable to the purchase discovered that we had proceeded in an irregular or unlawful manner. Being accounted the principal one of the three directors, I was approached in regard to the matter by Frederick Wolfe, a young German wagon maker who acted as spokesman for the discontented parties. Our conversation took place in the usual place for evening gatherings, the grocery store, kept by a German named August Wetterseller. I listened quietly to Mr Wolfe and the views he set forth. There is a story told about General Benjamin F. Butler when he was connected with Schuller, Colfax and others in obtaining some benefits through what might be termed a graft method, but which I believe was then termed a syndicate. When approached about the irregularity of the methods used and charged openly, with having obtained a certain amount of money thereby, Butler simply answered, Gentlemen, I did get the money and I promised to keep it. What are you going to go to do about it? Somewhat similar were the tactics I employed in answering Mr Wolfe. I told him we had paid out the money belonging to the ward and by a levy of tax against property within the ward had raised the amount needed for the second payment. It had been gathered by regular means at the general tax collections and was promptly paid out for the purchase for which it had been raised. A tax levied for the last instalment was then in process of collection and would be paid out before a suit at law could possibly be heard and decided. I told him I thought it would be foolish for them to proceed against us for any malfeasance as charged or to sue us for the amount involved for personally none of us had any of it in our possession. I also reminded him that we were given our time and services as directors without pay and wound up by asking just what they proposed to do about it. Sir, he made reply, we will never elect you school director again. That will be all right with me, I answered. I do not care to serve longer than the people wish me to do. So far as this property is concerned, we have accomplished what we set out to do, and that is all that is necessary now. They did not sue for us, malfeasance. <laughs> I can't say that, that's what it looks like. Anyway, uh, nor did they make any effort by personal suit against any of us to obtain the money we had dispersed. Neither was I elected to the school board again. A man by the name of Joseph helpful man was one who was so elected he was a justice of the peace in company with other trustees he tore down the 70s hall being used as a schoolhouse and managed to get away with some eight hundred dollars that he that belonged to the ward thus once more they had no schoolhouse and it was necessary to again raise funds for the purpose of building one. Finally, one was erected on quite a different location. They were neither, they were never able to get back the money taken by their absconding officer. In a later conversation with Mr. Wolfe about these matters, he admitted that Mr. Leitner 
Mr. William Smith and I had acted honestly and in accordance with our best judgment, and that, as things turned out, it would have been better for the patrons to have retained confidence in us and to have chosen us again, rather than to have elected the ones they did. I'm going to leave that there and carry on in the next section in the next episode. Thank you for listening.